the story of Herlequin's hunt. The short day was bitter cold and stinging snowflakes swept around the abbey at saint Evrul in Normandy on St Stephen's Day. With one mass down and one to go, the monks huddled around the tables in the refectory, staving off the chill with all the eggs, milk and cheese they could reasonably eat now that Advent was finally over. Brother Orderick was especially enjoying being able to eat eggs again, a vice which he hoped was innocent enough not to buy him any extra years in purgatory. Lately, it seemed that every sermon, every street-corner preacher, every clergyman going about his business around the country had nothing to talk about but purgatory. How terrible it was, how long you would spend there if you sinned even a little bit. How many years you could spare yourself by paying for a mass to be said in your name, or buying the church something. Privately, Orderick was never quite sure how he felt about the idea of purgatory. He remained quietly unconvinced that if there were a punishment awaiting the sinful in the afterlife, it was possible to buy your way out of it. But he kept these thoughts to himself. A small group of travellers were bustled into the refectory by the abbot and shown to the tables to join them. There were a couple of priests and a few villagers, all stiff, cold and tired. They were glad to sit down and tear into some bread and cheese. The monks watched them nervously, afraid to seem selfish or greedy by hanging on to their food, but just as afraid that these strangers were going to take all the best bits. We're on a pilgrimage to the Mont Saint-Michel, explained one of the priests, tearing into a big hunk of really good bread. We got caught in the snowstorm. The other priest had gone to the chapel to light a candle, but quickly returned and put a particularly rich piece of cheese on his plate. He was middle-aged, careworn but not worn down, with greying hair around his tonsure. Around the front of his neck and creeping up onto his face was a vivid red scar. It looked like a burn mark, but it seemed to be in the shape of a man's hand, the fingers curling around the priest's throat while the thumb poked up around his jaw. "'Who were you lighting a candle for, brother?' asked Orderick, grabbing an egg before the visitors could get to it. "'For my friend Stephen,' said the visiting priest, whose name was Walshelin. "'We came from the same village and we were ordained on the same day. "'He was a truly holy man, a far better priest than me. "'I go through the motions, but Stephen was a genuinely enthusiastic servant of God. "'He was murdered in the street many years ago.' He came across a man attacking a young woman and tried to intervene. The man beat him to death, but the woman got away and raised the alarm. The sheriff came upon them just as he was finishing the job. When word got around, Stephen's brother challenged the man to a trial by combat and killed him. Everyone around the table went quiet. I light a candle for him every year on St Stephen's Day, said Welshlin into the silence. I pray that his murderer may be tortured in the fires of hell for his crimes, said Brother Roger piously. Oh, he is already. Don't worry about that, said Welshlin. For someone who claimed to be the type of cleric who just goes through the motions, he sounded remarkably confident in this assertion. Well, we shall all pray for the soul of your friend tonight, said Orderick, hoping to move the conversation on. May he find peace with God. There were lots of muttered amens all around the table. I can't imagine what could drive a man to do such a terrible thing, said Brother Walter. Orderick sighed and took a hunk of bread to go with his egg. What goes through a man's mind in that moment? What makes him defy God to attack a woman or take a life? 
Such a man thinks nothing of God at all, insisted Roger. Such a man has nothing of God in him. If we are talking about a man who attacks a woman, perhaps you are right, said Welshlin. But once any man is in a desperate situation, you would be amazed what he can be driven to do. Even murder, said Walter. Perhaps, said Welshlin. His hand drifted up to touch the scar on his neck. Murder or theft? A man who feels himself trapped may do many terrible things. I would never do such a thing, declared Roger. There are no circumstances under which I could ever commit such a crime. Such things are the temptations of the devil, and they must be resisted. Then you are a better man than most, brother, said Welshlin. The pittances are good this year, said Orderick cheerfully, taking a piece of pie that had been passed down the table with glee and determined to change the subject. But he was thwarted again. If only the dead could reassure us that the good may be spared and the unjust punished, exclaimed Brother Lawrence. I know that we must have faith, and even faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. But it would still be nice to hear it. After all, our Lord did not condemn Thomas forever for his need for proof, did he? The dead cannot send messages to the living, said Welshlin. It is forbidden. You seem very sure of what goes on after this life has ended, my friend, said Walter. It is an extraordinary faith you have. Not really, said Welshlin with a shrug. It's just that I have seen it for myself. There was a general chorus of, what? Really? No. You can't have done. And so on. Even Orderick put down his food and gave the visitor his complete attention. I think, said Orderick, that you are going to have to tell us the whole story now, having made such a statement. Happily, said Welshlin. And so he began. It was the eighth night of Christmas, January 1st, in the year of our Lord 1091, said Welshlin. I had been visiting a sick man in an outlying area of my parish and I was on my way home. As I was walking along the road, I heard the sound of a large armed force of men approaching. Horses, men's voices, the clatter of equipment, shouts and cries. I was afraid of being attacked and robbed, though I had very little of value on me, so I tried to hide in a copse of trees by the road. But before I could get under cover, a giant man wielding a giant mace stepped in my path and would not let me past. A giant, scoffed Roger. Really? What sort of Celtic old wives' tale are you telling here? I can only tell you what I saw, said Welshlin calmly. The giant held his mace above his head and told me, Stay where you are. Do not move. Well, of course I did as he told me. I stood stock still by the side of the road and watched as the army approached. In the front of the procession was a large crowd on foot made up of villagers. I recognised some of them from my own village. They were people who had died recently. At this there was a general intake of breath around the table. That was when I realised I was watching a parade of the dead. They were carrying the same sort of plunder as any invading army, continued Welshlin. Some had animals draped around their shoulders, others' clothes, some were carrying furniture or household items. But they didn't look triumphant and they weren't celebrating. Instead, they were all complaining loudly and constantly to each other. They were chivying each other along and wailing about how they were being tortured because of their sins in life. How convenient, said Lawrence, but Walter quickly hushed him. 
The giant went back to join the procession, and I saw two big men approaching, carrying a beam between them. A man was lashed to the beam, and a demon sat on top of it. The demon had sharp claws for hands, and he was digging into the man's back and thighs with red-hot irons. And this is how I know that the dead are punished for their sins in life, because this man was Stephen's murderer. There was an even bigger collective gasp and a shudder around the table. I had witnessed the man's trial by combat myself, said Walshlin, and I will never forget his face. It was him. He was screaming in agony and blood was pouring freely from all his many wounds, almost as many as those he inflicted on Stephen. Good, muttered Lawrence, and Walter ordered him to say twelve Hail Marys immediately. Lawrence's lips moved silently, but Walshlin continued with his story. After that, I saw a group of hundreds of women riding side saddle in the fashionable way. There were red hot nails sticking up out of their saddles, and as they bounced up and down on the horses, they were thrust onto these nails, lifting off and being thrust back on again with every rise and fall of the saddle, crying out in pain every time. They must have been lustful, sinful women, said Roger. The room full of celibate men all around him agreed with this assessment wholeheartedly. I even saw horses and mules I recognised whose owners were still alive. They were pulling empty carts for women who have not yet died but whose place and torment has already been determined, said Welshlin. Everyone around him nodded sagely. Then, Welshlin carried on, I saw a great assembly of clerics and monks. At this, everyone's ears pricked up. A little tension returned and the complacency of a moment ago dissipated. They were dressed all in black, every one of them, but I saw bishops and abbots as well. Some I recognised as men who had been highly respected in life. Hugh, the Bishop of Lisieux, was there, and Gebert of Saint-Waldriel, and even, Wachelin paused nervously, remembering where he was, even Menet of Saint-Evroux. They were men we all respected, men we all thought had gone straight to join the saints in heaven. But God sees everything. Just because a man escapes human justice doesn't mean he has escaped justice altogether. There were a lot of wise nods and a few guilty looks around the table. Walshlin went on with his tale. After the troop of clergy in black, he said, came a great troop of knights and they were all dressed in black as well. They wore no colours except darkness and flickering flame, and they were armed as if to charge into battle, carrying pennants of the deepest black, and they rode enormous horses. I saw the dead sons of Count Gilbert, Richard and Baldwin, and Landry of Orbeck, who gruffly ordered me to take a message to his wife, but was shouted down by all those around him. I remember Landry of Orbeck, said Orderic grimly. He settled every court case to his own advantage, took bribes of all kinds, and never listened to the poor or the needy. Exactly so, Walshlin nodded. All the knights around him called him a liar, and they pulled him from his horse and muffled him so that he could not speak. This is extraordinary, said Lawrence. I have never heard of anything like it. I believe it was the troop of Herlequin, said Walshlin. A procession of the dead, all sinners atoning for their sins by wandering the land, being tortured eternally until their freedom could be bought with prayers, arms and the saying of mass. I'd heard stories about it and had even met people who claimed to have seen it before, but I always laughed at them. I thought it was all superstitious nonsense. 
All the other heads around the table suddenly lowered as their owners all took a great deal of interest in their fingernails, all except Walter, who continued to gaze rapt at Welshlin as he carried on. I was terrified, said Welshlin. The horde was thousands and thousands strong, still streaming past me, and it seemed never-ending. Every man and woman I saw was being horribly tortured in some form by demons or nails or red-hot irons. The giant had left me where I stood and the horde was swarming around me on either side so that I felt completely trapped. I could see no escape in any direction. It was then that I did something very, very foolish. In my desperation to get away, I tried to steal one of the horses. What? exclaimed Orderick, spitting out his mug of Christmas ale in surprise. I know, I know, said Welshlin. It was an utterly stupid thing to do and immoral. I was terrified and desperate. I stood in the middle of the road and held out my arm to stop a horse with no rider. Sure enough, it stopped to let me mount and I put my foot in the stirrup and grabbed the reins and the saddle. But as soon as my toe touched the stirrup, I felt a burning sensation on the sole of my foot. When I reached out to take the reins, an icy shiver ran down my arm and straight to my heart. Three of the knights of the horde rode up to me and raised their weapons as if to attack. Who are you, they demanded. What are you doing? We have done nothing to you, so why are you trying to steal our horses? A fourth came and drove them off, and I thought I was saved, but then he rounded on me even more fiercely. Listen to me, he said. Take this message to my wife, miserable priest. I am William of Gloss. My sins were many, but worst of all was the sin of usury. I made a loan to a poor man, and he put up his family mill to secure it. When he could not repay me, I kept the mill and bequeathed it to my heirs, denying the man's son his rightful inheritance. Look! Look in my mouth! I closed my eyes in terror, but he thrust his face so close to mine I could feel the heat from his mouth, even though he had no breath. When I opened my eyes, I saw in his mouth the burning shaft of a mill wheel. It must have been a source of constant torture. Tell my wife Beatrice and my son Roger that they must return this mill to the rightful heir, ordered the knight. Sir, I cannot, I protested. You have been dead many years and Roger of Gloss is a powerful man. If I come to him with this story, he will mock me or worse. And neither I nor you nor the millkeeper's son will be any better off than we are now. I will not do it. How dare you refuse me, raged the knight, and he reached out and grabbed me by the throat. His hand was burning and I could feel all the flesh around my neck and my jaw burning with it. You can still see the scars to this day. Walshelin tilted his head back to show the full extent of the red markings across his neck and jaw. His audience leaned in close to see better, taking advantage of the opportunity to stare in exactly the way they had been politely avoiding doing since the priest arrived. I thought I was a dead man, he said. I cried out, Blessed Mary, Mother of Jesus, help me! I had barely finished speaking when another knight appeared, and he threatened all the first four with his sword. I felt the hand release me and I cowered on the ground with my arms over my head, but then I heard the voice of my rescuer. Leave him alone, it was saying. Miserable wretches, why are you attacking my brother? For a moment I thought it was a fellow cleric, but the voice was familiar, so familiar. Not a priest or a monk, but a voice from much further back, a voice of home and family. Welshlin, stand up, don't be afraid, it said. Don't you know me? 
I raised you. I cared for you. I played with you when we were children. I arranged your education after our parents died. Surely you recognize me, your own brother? I looked up and it was him, my brother Robert. I was speechless. I could do nothing but weep. Well, my big brother had some things to say to me about my idiotic attempt to steal a horse. I felt like a little child again as he told me off, just like he used to when I stole apples from the orchard or hid one of his toys or books. You could have died for this, he told me, and I cowered again. But you've been lucky. You said mass earlier today, and that has saved you. And so now I can warn you, atone for your sins now before you end up riding in this endless hunt as well. It is unbearable. Our weapons are burning hot and they stink and they weigh so heavily upon us. I looked up at him and saw great clots of blood shaped like human heads attached to the spurs on his heels. What is that? I cried in horror. It is not blood but fire, little brother. Fire that comes with a weight as if I were carrying the Mont Saint-Michel. It is my punishment because I was so eager to spill blood in life. But I have hope. Our father was here too, but when you were ordained and celebrated your first mass for those who died in faith, he was set free. Pray for me. Give alms in my name. Say masses for me. And I hope and pray that by a year from Palm Sunday, I too will be freed. Is this a story or a sermon? muttered Lawrence quietly, but Roger preened a little and Walter seemed comforted. Each brother thought about his own prayers and almsgiving and considered which late relative might benefit the most from any increased effort on their part. Welshlin was wrapping up his story. It seemed that the horde had finally passed and only my brother was left, he said. He told me not to speak of anything I had seen for three days but the warning wasn't necessary because I was horribly ill for a week. Eventually I told the Bishop of Lisieux everything that had happened and then I recovered, mostly. He touched the scar on his neck again. For a few moments after Welshlin had finished his tale, everyone ate in silence. The food was starting to run low and slowly people started leaving the table. Lawrence thanked Welshlin for his very interesting story, which was his way of saying he didn't believe a word of it. Roger promised to remember Welshlin's brother in his prayers. Walter gave the visitor a thoughtful look and simply got up and left. Orderick sat a little longer and stared at the visitor, who stared calmly back. One by one, everyone else around the table retired, until only the two of them remained. Is any of that true? asked Orderick. What do you think? asked Welshlin, gesturing to the scar on his neck. Very well. Is all of it true? Here Welshlin looked a little shifty. I may have embellished a little, he said. How much? Welshlin bit his lip. A little, he said. Then a fair bit. Then all right, quite a lot. But I did not invent it entirely. It really happened. I saw the leader Hurlequin and the company following him. I tried to get away on one of their horses and I was attacked by a black knight and I really saw Stephen's murderer and my brother. I might have just exaggerated the details a little. Orderick made a vague grumbling sound. Hmm. Why should I believe anything you say when you've admitted you invented some of it? This scar for one thing, said Welshlin. How else could I have been burned by something shaped like a human hand? 
He paused. I used to tell people I saw dwarves with barrel-shaped heads and Ethiopians carrying the tortured men on poles. I was quite pleased when I came up with the dwarfs bit, but it seemed to be where I lost people. He was quiet again for a moment, then carried on. I want to help people, he said quietly. What I saw was terrifying. I want people to be terrified. I want them to save themselves before it's too late, to turn away from their sins and live better lives. He looked up and Orderick could see sincerity in his eyes. Maybe focus on that bit then, he suggested, and a bit less on the importance of saying mass. Walshlin shrugged. Mass is important too, he said. I believe that. Orderick nodded. With one last swig of his Christmas ale, he got up and left the table. I'll add your story to my history, he said, just as you told it to me. I'll even throw in the bit about the barrel-headed dwarfs if you want me to. It's an interesting image. Thank you, said Welshlin with a smile. He touched his neck lightly again. Audric nodded a farewell and walked away. The end. Welcome back to Creepy Classics, the podcast retelling and discussing ancient medieval and early modern ghost stories. I'm Juliet Harrison. And this month we have a Christmas story, it being Christmas time. This one is set on January the 1st, which is the eighth day of Christmas. The 12 days of Christmas start on Christmas Day and run through to Epiphany on the 6th of January, which is the end of the uh, main part of the Christmas feast. The period before Christmas is the period of Advent. Uh, which is traditionally like Lent before Easter, a period of fasting and abstinence. The framing narrative is set on St. Stephen's Day, which is known as Boxing Day in the UK, the 26th of December, um, largely to make the connection with the the character Stephen in the story. Um, But the hunt is seen on New Year's Day, January the 1st. So this is from a text called Historia Ecclesiastica uh, by Orderic Vitalis, um, who was an Anglo-Norman monk living at the Abbey of saint Evroul in Normandy uh, in the uh, 11th and then into the 12th uh, centuries. I have to say, I have no idea how any of these names should be pronounced. The text is in Latin, uh, but it would be the Latin of the medieval church, not classical Latin, and I know classical Latin. Um, these are Anglo-Normans, whether they should sound French or English or something between the two or even something different. Um, I'm familiar with the Breton languages. I'm not so familiar with the history of language in Normandy. Honestly, I have no idea. So it's been kind of potluck um, how I've pronounced each name. I've mostly gone for anglicizations. Um apart from places in France that still exist, like Le Mans Saint-Michel or saint evroux And then I throw in a few French pronunciations as well. Uh, basically, we're looking at what is now northern France, uh, not very long after the Normans had conquered England. So the, the culture is, you know, not like northern France now, not like England now. Yeah, it... It is 
not it's not going to exactly match any kind of modern culture and probably not pronunciation either it was a hard story to adapt this one because it's really long it's really detailed but there's no plot uh, it's about this priest who i've chosen to call walshalan 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 walshalin who knows um medievalists please tell me and he sees this this hunt and there's loads and loads and loads of detail about all the figures he sees in the hunt including the the man who murdered a priest called Stephen the brother the knights they're all in there I, I cut detail rather than adding detail um but there's there's no plot he just kind of sees it and then you know the point of the story for the medieval monks is say mass give alms avoid purgatory and this hunt is sort of a form of purgatory as far as we can see um so it was a bit of a tricky one to adapt and what i did was i thought it would be nice to think about belief and faith and use that as a framing for this story um there's a bit of a tendency to assume sometimes when looking at the past oh everybody believed this like if there's one text that says one person believed it then everybody must have believed it and that's you know humans don't work that way um <laughs> People have different levels of belief and how they express their different levels of belief depends on the culture that they live in. But you know, there are always atheists. There are always what we would call agnostics, people who aren't sure. There are always people with strong faith. All of those th attitudes exist in any time. Now, nowadays, of course, anybody who is a monk or a nun or a, a priest is usually somebody with very strong faith who feels a vocation, a calling to that life. But in the medieval period, there's all sorts of other financial, social, cultural, political reasons you might end up a member of the clergy that might not be to do with your religious faith itself. So I thought that was something really interesting to, to think about. Um, the idea that even the clergy in this period will have different ideas, um, different sort of beliefs personally, even if they don't express those beliefs out loud um you know they, they would preach according to what the church told them to preach but their own private thoughts might be different and i thought that was something that would be interesting to explore belief is something i'm very interested in 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 my research i personally am a christian i usually describe myself as a practicing christian although thanks to coronavirus not so much the last couple of years um but my personal beliefs are different to other people who might on paper ascribe to you know the same religion exactly what i believe is going to be slightly different um and it's kind of unusual a lot of people who study ancient paganism um are not religious so i i find it a very fascinating subject um in my research into religion and it is one of my big things is that it I find it frustrating when we try and boil down religion in the past to the Romans believed this, the Greeks believed this, medieval monks believed this. No, people believe different things. Um, but the variations of belief and the sort of things people might believe and what's a more common belief and a less common belief is something I find really interesting. So that's sort of how I came to end up framing this around ideas about sort of belief and faith. Um pittances incidentally are gifts of food and drink from benefactors given to uh, monks uh, at christmas 
we're too early for nativity scenes. They might have had some mystery plays, um, but I just focused this around um, not so much a feast because they are monks, but certainly a feast compared to Advent where they were allowed no animal products, including eggs, milk or cheese. That's why they were excited to have those. Um, the tonsure is the, the bald head. Uh, if you've seen images of medieval monks where they, they would shave um, a sort of circular shape into their head, that's called a tonsure. I thought the detail about the priest's fear of being attacked and robbed as soon as he heard an army was really interesting. Um, reminded me of Game of Thrones and some of the themes in the later Game of Thrones books about uh, how when there's a war, um, just the the poorer people, the people just trying to live their lives end up suffering because you've got this kind of general violence that comes with large armies. And that certainly seems to be um, reflected in this text where the, the priest, as soon as he hears an army, he's afraid he's going to be attacked and robbed before he realises it's an army of the dead. Um, also, trial by combat was a real thing. Um, another thing that comes up in Game of Thrones. But it was also a real thing. Uh, this is a medieval ghost story, so it's all about purgatory and doing penance for your sins. That is, in the medieval text, that is the point. That um, if you are sinful, you will be punished. And the only way to get out of the punishment is mass and almsgiving and so on. I played around a bit with some aspects of it because there was this reference to men carrying beers with dwarfs with barrel-shaped heads on them which was just so weird um, that I sort of took that out of the main story and referred to it at the end and also the kind of underlying racism of the fact that uh, in the original Stephen's murderer is being carried by two Ethiopians uh, who are carrying the pole that he's strapped to which is really interesting from seeing you know the the population at the time that you know people do move around the world um people are not completely ignorant of the people who live in other parts of the world um you know a medieval person is not going to have never seen somebody of another skin color necessarily um but it, there was a sort of slightly racist undertone to the idea that the ethiopians were were carrying uh, and this is latin of course so this is the usual latin way of describing black people basically the the assumption being that they're from that area of africa um but yeah, the idea that they were carrying the, the pole just seemed a little bit racist. So I sort of messed around with those aspects um, in terms of how I incorporated them into the story. Most of the rest of it, I've more or less just sort of rephrased um, from the original. I've kept as much as possible from the original. Um there's a definite tone of disapproval when he mentions the women riding side saddle. Uh, it seems to be a new fashion. And the tone almost seems to think that the side saddle riding is almost immoral, which is interesting because, as I understand it, in later periods, it would be not riding side saddle that would be considered immoral in a woman. Um, I made him a little bit more desperate when he steals the horse. In the text, he does it literally just to prove what he'd seen. And this is, again, partly why I wanted to talk about ideas of what people do and don't believe. Um, that In the original, Walshlin is so concerned that no one will believe him that he tries to steal a horse to prove it, uh, which just seemed like such a stupid idea and definitely quite immoral from a priest. Uh, I just made him a bit more desperate and kind of trying to get away just to make him a bit more sympathetic as a character, really. I thought the reference to the sin of usury was very interesting. There's a very different mindset around debt and loans and finance because what happens here is a rich man is made a loan, the poor man couldn't pay it back, so the rich man kept the mill that the poor man had put down as security. And from a modern perspective, 
I can imagine a lot of people seeing this as entirely reasonable. The the mill was the security for the loan. He couldn't repay the loan, so the rich man keeps the mill. That's how it works. But it's interesting that that is considered sinful in this context that the the medieval mindset is that the mill owner's son is the rightful heir, that the rich man has done something wrong in taking it, even though it was put up as security for the loan. It's a very different attitude toward money lending and toward debt and toward the idea of kind of lending to others and what you expect back. It's kind of similar to A Christmas Carol. And I know Charles Dickens' father was in debtor's prison and Charles Dickens had very strong feelings on the cruelty of demanding that debts be repaid by people who cannot repay them. And similar themes come up in A Christmas Carol. And actually similar themes of being punished for your sins after death as well, um, of a warning to a living man from friends and relatives saying this is what's going to happen if you don't mend your ways. You can see a lot of the same themes from A Christmas Carol coming out in this story. I also kept in the reference to Mont Saint-Michel. So I invented the pilgrimage in the framing story, but the reference to the head-shaped blood that has the weight of the Abbey of Mont Saint-Michel. Really weird image. Um, That's in the original. Uh, The Abbey at Mont Saint-Michel was built over a period of centuries, beginning with a smaller sanctuary in 708. The Abbey that's there now is a little bit later, but there's been some building on that site for a very, very long time. It is absolutely gorgeous. If you've never been to Mont Saint-Michel or seen pictures of it, um, I'll maybe see if I can put up some pictures on my Twitter feed. Um... It, oh, it's beautiful. I love Mont Saint-Michel. It's one of my favourite places. It's right on the border between Normandy and Brittany. Um, it is only accessible at low tide. Um, it, it looks like Minas Tirith from Lord of the Rings or Tashban from the Chronicles of Narnia, if you can picture either of those, because both of those places are based on Mont Saint-Michel. Um, it's gorgeous. I'll, I'll put some pictures on Twitter and of course you can Google it, but it's absolutely beautiful. If you're ever in the area when it is legal to do so, um, then absolutely do visit it. So I, I could not resist keeping that in, even though that, that was another bit of seriously weird imagery. The blood clots shaped like a human head that's actually fire, that's really heavy. All of that is straight out the original. I would not have made that up. It's really strange imagery in this story. The nature of this hunt is something that has been debated. And obviously, I'm a specialist in ancient Rome, so I'm reliant on medieval specialists, really, uh, in understanding this. Ghostly armies are common all over the place, usually in the context of haunted battlefields. And that is a common theme in ghost stories in sort of all times and places, wherever there have been battles. Uh, Pausanias, the ancient Greek geographer, tells a story about Marathon being haunted by the sounds of a ghostly battle. Um, Glencoe in Scotland uh, has ghost stories associated with the massacre of Clan MacDonald when they refused allegiance to William and Mary in 1692. There are loads of ghost stories around Gettysburg and photographs if you go searching online, which are quite entertaining, of orbs and smudges that are meant to be soldiers. So haunted battlefields is, is very, very common. The wandering ghostly army, however, is a little bit more of a medieval thing um so this text seems to be the earliest mention of it but then there's quite a few texts in this period of the kind of 
later medieval period from sort of the 11th to the 14th centuries there's a lot of references to similar stories and the narrator in the story implies it's well known Welshlin says oh I realized it must be the familia herlikini uh, now, familia in this case implies company or troop. Obviously, the original Latin meaning of familia is family, household. Uh, but household can also be expanded to mean kind of military troop or company. So there's an implication in the text that this is a well-known folk tale, but we don't have any earlier evidence for it. Um, scholars have suggested a few possibilities for this leader, Herlequin or Heliquin, um, possibly the old French hell or air tumult and the Germanic here army and thing assembly, possibly Koenig Germanic king, or maybe it comes from the Anglo-Saxon hellekin, hellkin, so kin of hell. There have been various suggestions. Nobody's quite sure where this name comes from or really what it means. Ronald Hutton has written extensively on this in an article available through JSTOR. Um, he says the wild hunt is often interpreted as having roots in paganism. Um, but he points out there's no Greco-Roman precedent, and I certainly haven't come across one. He suggests there isn't an Old Norse precedent either. This really kind of comes into being in the medieval period. So it's a fascinating kind of theme, and I'm sure we'll see it again because it does crop up in so many medieval ghost stories after this one. Um, the association with Christmas and the darkest time of the year is interesting as well. Obviously, always a good time for ghost stories. Um, it doesn't seem to have any ancient roots, certainly not that I'm familiar with. It seems to be associated with these medieval ideas about purgatory and about being punished for your sins. And it's a way of allowing the living to see that punishment happening. But it does seem to have been a, a common folktale because it's not explained in the text. Um, the, the text does not bother to explain what Herlequin's familia is. So it must have been uh, a commonly known folktale that was circulating orally at the time. And we've just got to try and sort of piece it together from what textual evidence we have. So this text um, is available in Andrew Joynes' book, Medieval Ghost Stories, translated into English. Uh, as I mentioned, it is Orderic Vitalis Historia Ecclesiastica 817. I was alerted to its existence by Jean-Claude Schmidt's book Ghosts in the Middle Ages. I say I'm not a medievalist or a medieval specialist by any means. Uh, but Ghosts in the Middle Ages um, refers to many, many, many um, fascinating medieval stories. And that's where I found this one. I used um, an English heritage blog uh, on celebrate Christmas like a medieval monk um, for some of the details of Christmas in medieval monasteries, things like pittances and the food uh, differences between Advent and Christmas. And then if you have access to academic articles on JSTOR, um, Ronald Hutton's article is called The Wild Hunt and the Witch's Sabbath and is in Folklore, volume 125, number two from 2014. I also used an article by Mark Hager called Secular Law and Custom in Ducal Normandy, circa 1000 to 1144. That's in Speculum, volume 85, number four from 2010. Uh, that is where I read a bit about trial by combat, um, which I haven't talked about in any great depth other than to say it existed. But uh, if you do have access to JSTOR, um, you can read more details about uh, trial by combat there. 
So thank you for listening. Happy holidays, everybody. We will be back uh, with another historical ghost story next month. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison, with vocals by Olivia Knops, was produced by Juliet Harrison, with assistance from Newman University. (laughs) 